Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. Come one, come all, to the Crisis Podcast Extravaganza, playing for you right now. I am your host, Travis Atkinson. It's a pleasure to be back here with you with another in-person podcast episode. Galdarn, as my uh, late grandfather would say, uh, what a what a blessing to be able to see the humans and to get a chance to travel. So uh, back in early November, I got a chance to go to California. And when I did, I set up a couple of, of podcast interviews. And I'm so glad that I did because, um, because you're going to get to hear a, a great one. It's with my friend Hudson Harris. Um, Hudson is a behavioral health uh, systems thinker. He's an attorney. Uh, he works for San Diego County, and he's just—he's just a cool guy. Um, I'm—I'm very fortunate in as this year draws to a close and and season one draws to a close, thinking about all of the people that I've been fortunate to interview, and it—it's just—it's cool. I, I really can't wait to to share this interview with you. Uh, we talk about a number of things. We talk about how to use data in building a crisis system and holding it accountable. We talk about some of Hudson's own lived experience uh, with his family as well as just with himself um, with with mental illness. We talk about some of our favorite organizations like AAS and suck it suicide and his his first foray foray is that how you say it foray foray uh into aas at the annual conference we talk about the importance of of accountability and scalability and outcomes and crisis services and and he gets to share some some really tangible examples about all those things so i can't wait to share it with you but i don't have to wait because here is episode nine of the Crisis Podcast, Hudson Harris. Hudson Harris, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thank you, Travis. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm a little jealous. You live in one of what I think is like the most beautiful cities in the country in San Diego and it's November and it's, the sun is out regularly. I'm a Midwest guy. So I just kind of, uh, I don't know. I this is the sun. It comes out <laughs> year round. It's here. not just in the, in the books, yeah. the school books and things like that. So, um, Hudson, tell our listeners, what do you do and why do you do it? 
So I work um, in the field of mental health strategy. So I help uh, governments, nonprofits, agencies, healthcare systems design better systems of care. And sometimes that's at a system level. So I'm helping you know, everything from like the flow of patients through an entire crisis network or down to the service level. Um, I'm working on mobile crisis design right now. And then on the private side, I work uh, with private, private organizations that want to do go-to-market um, for you know everything from like behavioral health, artificial intelligence, product design, patient experience. Um, sometimes I also bring, get brought in on consults of just how to bring a mental health lens to you know, you know new you know new business. I mean it's it's kind of a, a mixed bag there, but it's people wanting to have that type of lens there. So it's a mixed uh, a mixed bag all across. Okay, and um, are you from Texas originally? No, so I actually, uh, I lived in six states before I graduated high school. Um, I was born in Columbia, Missouri, uh, was the start, and then moved every year or two until I graduated high school. Okay. And um, we were talking a little bit before before the, the podcast started, but um, how did you end up working in San Diego's behavioral health system? Um, that is a long and tortured tale. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I actually came to San Diego in 2007 to go to law school. And uh, became a lawyer, practiced law, and then I left San Diego in 2014 to go work for a behavioral health uh, services and technology company and went into the general counsel office. And while I was there, uh, really realized that I didn't like being a lawyer. You know, the problem with the legal field is that it's full of lawyers. Um, and I started there to really shift my focus to privacy. And then um, my very first uh, AAS talk was on information sharing and behavioral health emergencies. It was Saturday at 1.30, and I think there were more volunteers than there were <laughs> attendees. Preach. Uh, but it, it, it kind of launched this this path forward where I did that. And then um, I did some really amazing um, uh innovative work in technology for uh, behavioral health and um, uh, using big data with a company called SAP. And it just started this cycle where I was um, started to become known for designing things in behavioral health in ways that, you know, I brought um, my experience both in the law and in business to behavioral health. And it hadn't, in a lot of areas, hadn't been done that way. So I moved back here in 2018 um, I left my last, uh, uh, my last job May of 2018 and I went out, um, with a theory that people would want someone who had legal experience, design experience, uh, an MBA, and then wanted to help change the world. And, uh, two and a half months later, uh, I got brought on by the County Board of Supervisors to start helping. And then now it's been a year and a half and I'm working directly inside the County now for behavioral health services. But it's, it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, there's no way I could have like planned this. Um, but it's the first time in my life that, uh, everything has come together. It's like the Japanese, they call it the Ikigari or I'm sure I butchered that, but it's where your, your talent, your passion, the money and the social good all line up into one thing. It's the first time in my life I've ever really felt, you know, right where I should be. I might want that tattooed on my arm. Yeah. I'll send that it would to be you. A great yeah, we can symbol. go get matching tattoos since we match clothes right now too. For, for those of you not watching the video, which there isn't one, Travis walked in and we are both wearing uh, purple t-shirts, uh, khaki shorts and brown flip flops. So this is midlife. This is yeah. what we do. Um, I want to get into San Diego's uh, behavioral health system because I think it's fascinating and it has a storied history. Um, but <clears throat> there's this auto commercial from a couple of years ago with these uh, these two super fans that are hanging out in in folding chairs, you know, before the game talking. And somehow, of course, auto insurance always comes up. But at one point, 
after you've seen five or six of these commercials, this one guy references his wife, and the other guy goes, you're married? (laughs) That's how I felt when I was watching one of your talks recently, um, when you started talking about being an attorney, and I was like, you're a lawyer? (laughs) Because you and I are just, you know, we're sharing a lot of memes and talking about mental health and suicide prevention, and and that's awesome. So I guess tell tell me a little more about how that intersection happened of, uh, you know, because that's a... It, like like you said, Ikigari, or I'll, I'm butchering a butchered word now, but but as you talk about like this opportunity that seems to have presented itself, I'm sure it's been many years in the making, but um, how how did you cultivate this interest and how did you decide to take, you know, a, a, a legal approach to solving some of, of the world's problems, especially as we think of behavioral health challenges? So... Behavioral health runs in my family, um, both literally and professionally. <laughs> um, my uh, my dad and my uh, my mom were both MSWs, um, and then uh, both ended up going into like different administration type stuff. Mm. And so I, I grew up around it. Um, I'm also you know a, a, a product of divorce, so I was you know in therapy from a very young age. So I've just always had a very healthy relationship with uh, mental health. Like to me, it's like a gym. Like you should be going as often as you can. And, you know, it was uh, something that's always been um, uh, a cause that I supported and believed in through college and, you know, had some lived experience through that. Um, I've struggled, you know, with my own uh, mental health, uh, with ADHD, depression and anxiety as, you know, life has has done things. Uh, where the, the shift really happened is I did... Um, well, I mean, not the shift, but I think really one of like the drives and passions um, is 2017. Um, I uh, I did this a project where we were using um, mental health, uh, behavioral health data in criminal justice settings to figure out who needed services more uh, for a mental health jail diversion program. Okay. So we created a predictive recidivism model that was really geared towards what are the driving factors um, from, a, from a behavioral health perspective that was uh, causing these people to continually recidivate because in the criminal justice system, especially the mental health criminal justice system, there's not really a lot of focused care. It's a lot of just fire hose of support. So, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the listeners will probably like relate to this that or, or have heard of this. You know, someone gets discharged on a Friday with a bag of meds for three days, a handful of pamphlets and all these appointments that they've got to make across town, go to a specialty pharmacy for their for their medication assisted treatment, you know, whatever. Like it's just a really bad system. And so the idea and the theory was could we figure out ways to target those individuals better and figure out how can we identify them? Because in running through the data, what we, what we saw was is that if you could keep somebody from spending the night in jail, their odds of returning within, you know, if somebody spent the night in jail, their odds of returning in six months was 67%. Uh, so the goal was let's identify them early. Um, this mental health jail diversion program was a conditional release program. And, I worked with uh, SAP on this uh, predictive model, SAP, and then a a friend of mine, Eric Vallow, in St. Louis on developing this model. And we built this predictive model in three weeks, had uh, 36 months of data, hundreds of thousands of records, pharmacy, jail, crisis data, HIE data, Medicaid data. It was unbelievable. But when you really boiled it down, it came down to like three or four really key things. Uh, Atypical schizophreniform lasting longer than six months, criminal trespass, a.k.a. sleeping while homeless, uh, number of higher level of care events, uh, number of jail uh, forensic events, 
and the fifth one is escaping. But it was really, really focused and really, really narrow of what was really driving this population back. So I went down um, to give uh, a talk at, at the SAP annual conference and uh, accepted an innovation award. And I had this really um, uh, profound, like, I mean, soul-shaking moment. I was, I was like literally on stage um, giving a talk and, and it was just, it was an unbelievable experience and like got to meet some incredible people and talk with some people. I found that this topic is something that brings people together in ways that, I mean, nothing else I ever talked about does. I mean, you know, 30 minutes before I was getting on stage, um, one of the chief brand officers for this global company came up to me, um, introduced a friend of mine, introduced me to her and she's like, my son died by suicide six weeks ago. And so then 30 minutes prior to getting on stage, I'm crying. She's crying. Like it just, the number of people that came up and talked to me, it was really profound. I think it was one of the first times that I felt in my life, like the things that I was doing could impact people, could really like help people. Um, so while I was on stage, um, so my first name is William and like, it's one of the funny things, like people who've known me forever don't know this. So my full name is William Hudson Harris. Uh, there's like 10 Williams in my family. So I've always gone by Hudson. Uh, but I have, uh, I have a relative whose uh, first names are also William Hudson. And uh, while I was on stage, he had an attempt. And um, it, was, it was like, it was really funny. I called um, Kate. Uh, Kate Hardy. It's, oh yeah. It's, it's yeah. Suicide. It was like my first time like calling a crisis line and like, and I was, I was safe. I was okay. But it was definitely one of these moments where I, um, I felt like how, you know, who am I to get up and talk about this stuff when like, I can't even take care of my own family or, you know, what, you know, that type sure. of thing. And it, and it, and it shook me. Um, and it really motivated the shit out of me. Um, I really wanted to do something and do things that could help impact more people. Um, and so, you know, I turned around the next year and did an even larger project with SAP. Um, and that same chief brand officer from SAP came to me about six months later and said they wanted to do an international suicide awareness campaign. So then I got to work on safe messaging and got to do all sorts of different things. And it really led me down this path of this was my sweet spot. I had the ability to do these things. I had like the, the, the ability to do the, the relationships and the, and the site to see the system stuff. And so when, um, in, in 2019, this was the other big thing. Um, my nephew of 13 years died of Ewing sarcoma. So I had like a 2019 was kind of, I mean, I, I think from what I've talked about with a lot of people, it was kind of a barn burner of a year for everybody. He died in August. Um, and then I lost two friends to suicide the week before New Year's. Oh my gosh. And it really, um, it really brought things into perspective for me. And like, you know, when I, when I left my last work, I kind of set my intentions of what I wanted. And, and one of the really big things was I wanted my talents to help more people. Like I really felt like the, my ability to do the things that I do was much better served in the public space where I could impact a lot. Uh, and two and a half months after I left, I started working with San Diego County on behavioral health, you know, creating a strategy around behavioral health redesign. And it was just, yeah, again, like you couldn't have planned any of that, but it was just, that was the path that got me where I was. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. I but... love long-winded answers. That's <laughs> what this podcast was about. That's great. Um, you mentioned AAS, which is the American Association of Suicidology. And... In, as it comes to the suicide prevention uh, circle or circles, you and I kind of run in some of the same ones. Um, I'm always fascinated 
with what people do between 5 p.m. and 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to me that's just as interesting as what they do during the day for, the, for their mm-hmm. work. How have you gotten involved with organizations like AAS and what has that brought for you professionally or personally? You know, AAS is, I think, the first professional organization that I've been a part of that I felt like I was a part of, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember um, my first AAS, damn, this must have been four years ago. I sat down uh, at the hotel in D.C., Heather Williams, and um, oh my gosh, his name is escaping me, Um, both from the same place in, in, in Springfield, Oh, I'm so sorry, dude. I'm forgetting your name. No, but a- I sat down and um, Heather just started to talk to me. And then her crew came from her organization. And then all of a sudden I was just like talking with people that were a part yeah. of this. And it was my very first one. And I'd never experienced that at an organization. Um, and then over the course of the weekend, got to know April Foreman, got to know Jenna Heisey. And like all these people just, it was just this most unbelievable welcoming event. Um, and... I just wanted to be more involved. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to get engaged. Um, that led, uh, ultimately led to me being a part of season three of SPSM, um, suicide oh, prevention yeah. and social media. So uh-huh. I did that for a year. Um, it led me to meet Kate Hardy, uh, and Amelia, uh, Amelia was, uh, I was on the plane, uh, flying in and, uh, tweeted out like an animated GIF and Amelia responded back and we got into this like GIF battle on Twitter. Uh, and I remember at the time my leadership was like, that's unprofessional. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> I, was like, I think this is the best thing that's ever happened. Uh, it was like finding home. Like it was just, yeah. you know, and it's one of those things. And then I went to suicide spring break and I remember, uh, De- uh Desiree Lestage walking out with a cake that said, suicide spring break and I thought that's the most irreverent thing I've ever seen I love it like because like I have a pretty irreverent sense of humor um and and it's like I found my people that were like just at that edge of uncomfortable yes yep you just want to push the boundaries just a little the one that makes your parents uncomfortable but you're like no let's go a little further yeah 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 we want to do this um and then you know it's been um did some work with the board on, I mean, you know, again, like bringing my, my privacy experience and legal experience got to help with some of the stuff that the board was working on. And so it's just been, it's like, I call them my nest organizations. And I have, you know, I have three, I have AAS, uh, suck at suicide and San Diego two one one. And those are the three organizations that really resonate inside of me and their cause and what they do. And, you know, I've just always really strongly believed in, 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 in their mission. And even if I can't participate or go to things, I want to know that they're doing well. And so, yeah. Let's, let's do a quick plug for uh, Suck at Suicide because um, I'm also from Michigan, just like Kate. And uh, can you tell the listeners not just what Suck at Suicide uh, is, but how it relates to Six Feet Over? Six Feet Over? Yeah. 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 So, uh, Kate, if I butcher this, I'm so sorry if you're listening. Um, so suck at suicide helps families, um, after, uh, after a suicide, after, uh, the crisis has happened, both in terms of resources and burial, uh, cleanup. And they, it was, it's one of those things where, um, I'm a big, when it comes to design, uh, I approach things a, a lot differently. I mean, even as, even as an attorney, like I have to know, I have to see things on the ground to understand how they work in the sky, if that makes sense. And so mm. like one of the pieces that I'd never thought through was what happens after. 
And so Kate uh, and Amelia uh, really helped me understand and educate on like, hey, like this, there's a huge gap in this type of system and, and, and what people need, especially in Michigan. And they just do some of the most amazing, loving work for when people are at their absolute lowest possible moment. And then they're also just uh, a bunch of BAMPs and like they have unbelievable uh, awareness campaigns and they do just great work with like going around to, well, when we had festivals pre-COVID, like pre-COVID, like, you know, festivals and they, you know, they've gone to like heavy metal concerts and like gotten people engaged in like suicide prevention. And like, mm -hmm. I love that stuff. Like I love bringing this concept to places that it's never been before. Um, so yeah, so I've actually, this year I haven't, but I've made it up to Michigan at least once in the past, at least once a year to go up and see them and just spend a few days and yeah. say hello. I did, there was a conference I gave a talk at and yeah, so it's, it's just, I don't know. You find those organizations that resonate inside of you and they just yeah, do. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, I, you know, part of why I host this podcast is because I just, I nerd out on crisis services and uh, the former director of, I think he was the medical director of, of San Diego County uh, or, or behavioral health department or whatever, uh, happens to be one of my favorite people of all time, mm -hmm. which is Lauren Mosier. Mm -hmm. So he started the Soteria House in the early 70s in the San Jose area. And then he moves to uh, the D.C. area and starts the first crisis residential program, essentially, or what, what today looks like that. Starts one in D.C., starts one in Maryland, and then moves to San Diego and spends the rest of his career working in community mental health. And mm -hmm. he even wrote this book called Community Mental Health. Uh, and I'm just, and I'm amazed. And you, I don't know if you know this too, but San Diego County has the largest per capita of crisis residential beds in the United States. I did not know that. So they have been making crisis services a priority for such a long time, you know, going back to probably the 90s or maybe mm -hmm. even before. And they continue to add these these new programs, these mm -hmm. new contracts. Um, Community Research Foundation, I've, I've, uh, I've had interface with them a lot, found them to be a, a fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. But it's encouraging to come across cities or counties that, that make their behavioral health a priority. What's, what's happening now that has you encouraged about the direction that behavioral health is going here? Yeah, San Diego, uh, San Diego is one of those, I think, rare environments where it has uh, – almost all of the pieces for what I would call a fully fleshed out behavioral health system, both a fully, uh, a, a fully staffed and, and programmed uh, crisis response network. And then on the, um, you know, subacute side, behavioral health services mm -hmm. from, you know, youth transitional age, all the way up to, to adult and older. And they really have a commitment and have dedicated the resources and funds um, to make it happen. I think the last time I checked, if San Diego was a state, it would be 10th in this, in the nation for behavioral health spend. Um, wow. it was seven, $775 million for this year. I mean, pre COVID thrown everything up in the air. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think that that's really like, that's, so that's like the foundational element. We have the, the programmatic pieces necessary. We have the resources dedicated to it. And then I think what's really got me excited is that, you know, the the political will is really there. Um, San Diego is experiencing kind of a renaissance of of politics. Once they instituted term limits, um, the board is really starting to shift more towards really what these resources are being used for and how they're being used and how we can use them smarter. And so, San Diego has you know the the programs, the money, and the political will, 
And then it has the leadership at the agency level that is uh, Luke Bergman is the director of uh, BHS and came from um, New York where they, they set up one of the first like really just unbelievably robust care coordination programs. And care coordination is something that is, uh, as part of suicide prevention, care coordination is one of the most like critical things to me and like passionate things is like, if we're not coordinating somebody's care, you know, if I break my ankle, I've got relatively clear mind and faculties and the ability to go do things and advocate for myself and all these other things. People that are having mental health crises or even just normal mental health events don't always have that. So that care coordination piece is so critical. And so uh, when I got brought on with the county, one of the things that was really the driving effort behind the strategy was how do we create uh, a service? How do we create care coordination that really is like robust, longitudinal um, relationships, not just these like drop in things, and then is driven by data um, and using technology to really integrate? And that's one of the things I think I had really learned uh, my time in criminal justice. I worked uh, on a, the mental health jail diversion program where pre technology, uh, so, you know, the way that it was set up, it was, so it was pre-trial release uh, on a conditioned upon treatment plan, um, it, you know, acceptance and adherence. And people would get arrested and then, you know, the average time for someone to be uh, identified in jail that's not having a loud mental health event, but nationally the time is about 10 to 14 days, at which point you're meds are starting to wear off. You've got knock on charges. You might've punched a guard. I mean, there's so many bad things that happen in jail. Um, so 10 to 14 days was unacceptable. So, uh, we created a technology platform that took it from 10 to 14 days to 15 minutes. So we were able to basically live determine when people are walking in the door with that were known behavioral health consumers that were, you know, indigent Medicaid, et cetera. So, uh, before the program started, the, the clinicians that were working the program, um, real warriors of like trying to help people and figure things out. They would identify, find, assess, and then get about 50 people evaluated for pretrial diversion a month. And maybe half of those would go through this, would actually go through the program. Once we really developed a really well fleshed out, well-designed technology platform, they're now, when I left, they were somewhere around 350 people all the way through pretrial diversion a month. So it's like a five times multiplier, but that's robust technology, coordinates care, integrates data, lets people, you know, put, get into a workflow. So you, there's no one falling through the cracks. And, uh, that's really what I want to bring to San Diego is a, is a care coordination program where you can do just everything I just described, not just in the criminal justice setting, but across the County, you know, San Diego is three and a half, 3.2 million people, 4,500 square miles and super geographically diverse. But none of that matters to technology. Like it's just how do, how do we design these things and build these things to really support that? And I think those are the those are the pieces that's got me really, really mm-hmm. excited about what's going on in San mm-hmm. Diego and just their willingness to pivot and learn. I've, you know, I've never seen. I've worked with politicians before. I've worked with you know agency directors. I've never seen a group that was so openly curious and genuinely wanted to learn and understand, you know, different ways of doing things. I think a lot of times people get fixed, uh, in their pathways. Um, but there's just a, a genuine curiosity and desire that like, this doesn't have to be about ego. This has to be about the people that need the, the help. Yeah. From what I've learned, it seems that good behavioral health care is good for everyone when it's cost effective and it's outcomes driven. Mm-hmm. And so you can appease the people who care about, um, a, a, a good quality of life for everyone. And you can appease the people who want to save money mm-hmm. because without a system, 
it's very quickly becomes an expensive ordeal. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that people who have a mental illness or who have committed a crime are dangerous, then they have to go to these extreme settings. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to make sure that nothing bad happens, but it's not always to make sure something good happens as well yep. out of their experience. And so if you, there, there, there's a paradigm shift that's happening in communities. And unfortunately it happens one leader at a time and, and often is not a sweeping experience, but we're moving away. And, and I had a, a, a police officer on the, the podcast a few months ago and I was just struck by the empathy that's happening, for example, mm -hmm. in law enforcement, where you're starting to see people not for their crimes, but for who they are as people. Mm -hmm. But but to get to your, your point about the care coordination piece is I wonder how scalable is behavioral health? Mm -hmm. You know, can you really have a, a psychiatrist in a hospital with a 70 person caseload? Mm -hmm. You know, can they really provide the good care that Dr. Lauren Moser did in, in much smaller scale settings? Can you expect a case manager or a therapist to hold a 50, 70, 100 person caseload and still be effective? You know, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to check the boxes mm -hmm. or are you trying to, to change the course of their mm -hmm. life so that they're not recidivating? They're not, yep. you know, returning to the hospital. I'm just curious what you think about that. Like what, what's the sweet spot mm -hmm. where, you, where you are, you know, uh, you're efficient and, uh, and a good steward of your, your financial resources, mm -hmm. but you're also producing good clinical outcomes right. that, that, uh, give people a good chance at actually getting help instead of being like, well, we offered them this service. It wasn't what they needed, right. but we did offer it to them and we get, you know, yeah. So, so there's, there's kind of three things in it that you talked about. You talked about uh, the money um, and the, the scalability and then the, the clinical outcomes. So starting with the money, like I, I, I give this talk and I, I've said it in rooms full of people that I was expecting it to piss them off and it did. And, and then they're like, oh, wait a minute. And, um, you know, behavioral health care is one of those things. It's very unlike um, other types of health care or even just other services. The, the more you pay by and large, the lower the quality of outcomes. And like, it's this really weird, I know, just follow me on this though. It's like, if, if I, if I, you know, blow up my knee and I, you know, I have to go into the, go into the hospital and I need, you know, orthopedic surgery and then something goes wrong, they go into ICU. Like those are the things that are most likely to make me well, because I need that super intensive level of care. In behavioral health care, when somebody has a crisis and we do, you know, an involuntary hold or someone, um, you know, gets picked up on the street for having a loud event or sleeping while homeless and we put them in jail, um, that hospital event where somebody is involuntarily held, they're safe, quotation marks, for those three days. And then their highest risk of suicide is 30 days after discharge. Yes. Their highest risk of criminal of justice involvement, their highest risk of relapse, their highest risk of you know drug use is six months after, and like it's the it's the iatrogenic effect. The treatment is worse than the cure, and so what you see is these high cost, high intensity services that don't do shit. And you know the I worked on an, uh, a Medicaid eleven fifteen program where we had to create basically a menu of these are the costs we're avoiding and like the average hospital stay for someone with a mental health event was around twelve thousand dollars, and so that was the normal cost, 
And we know what happens afterwards that, you know, outpatient connection rates without, a, without an integrated coordinated system are usually sub 30%. Odds of readmission in six months is as high as 75%. Odds of, you know, justice involvement can be 60 or 65%. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how all these risk factors go up. We also know that if we can keep somebody in community behavioral health and keep them in their home, five to seven dollars a day per patient as a community behavioral health cost has way more impact and benefit. And so it's one of those things as a cost thing. I've gotten in rooms with uh, Republicans and Democrats and independents, and I've said, look, do you want to pay for it now and cheap? and get good outcomes? Or do you want to pay for it later and have it be more expensive and then even more expensive and then even more expensive? And, and like one of the things that I brought uh, to the programs that I've done is I've built uh, ROI, return on investment calculators for crisis diversion services, jail diversion services, emergency department diversion of like the number of events you have, the diversions, what their costs are, the cost avoided, all these things. Because what I found is again and again and again in behavioral health is that we, we, we don't teach how to pitch. And like what I've said, I've said over and over again is a good clinical idea. A good idea does not a business make. And because what will happen is if someone will be like, well, you know, I've got this clinical idea and it's going to be great. And all these people are going to be awesome, but you haven't created a pitch deck. You haven't created value propositions. You don't have a one pager to explain why they should be doing it. So it doesn't ever get done because we don't sell it. Um, and that's something that I always try and bring because the, the amazing thing about behavioral health and one of the things I love so much is that it's one of the only things I've ever done in my life where small tweaks creates huge rewards. The amount of low hanging fruit in behavioral health is just mind blowing. Like the, <laughs> the jail diversion program I worked on, a jail diversion program, uh, it was, it ran, it's still running, but five years was the demonstration project for 1115. It netted um, over $30 million of cost avoidance and cost savings in five years. Uh, the average daily jail population went down 22%. Higher level of care costs went down 20%. Recidivism went down five and a half points for mental, for, for mental health offenders, like the most complex of complex. And the next year, HHS tried to cut it because like, you know, so it's one of those, and like we saved it, that was when I started the ROI calculator thing, but like, those were small things. Identify them early, create a treatment plan, and keep them out of jail. That's the basis. Yep. And like, so, you know, it's one of those things I think from a cost perspective, when talking uh, to different people and talking with, you know, whether it's police chiefs about mobile crisis or politicians, it's, it's really getting clear and explaining that you're already paying for this but you're paying in a really bad way. Like you're not paying in a way that's going to help anybody. You're paying in a way that's going to let you keep somebody safe for a few days. And then their risks are just going to be through the roof. And it's like, that to me is always the money discussion. And like, when I talk to people and like, that's why, like I've always had this policy that like, I freely share what I have. So any of you listeners want to have any of those crisis calculators I have, I, I will, I will uh, give it to Travis Hooray. and send it to you. Um, but laying something out um, in a way to say, you know, like the, the, the crisis events. I, I just did this this week. You know, we know for a population of three and a half million people that you're going to have roughly, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 inbound crisis calls a month. You're going to have 250 to 300 face-to-face -face events. Like these numbers we know. We also know that when the police show up nationally, if the police show up at your door, half the time you're going to jail, half the time you're going to prison or, or, or to the hospital. Yeah. That's, 
ridiculous. And, and so what happens is, is that, it, and this is like the dichotomy that I've really figured out now that I've been working in this a while, is that the difference is the lens you approach it with. That in government, if you're fire, EMS, police, et cetera, you're approaching from risk management. Yes. When you're a crisis worker or a hotline or mobile crisis, you approach from care management. What is the least restrictive alternative for care that this individual can have that will allow them to maintain their quality of life? And so the costs just don't add up. They don't, they don't give us the benefit we need. It's not efficient use of resources, et cetera. So that's, so that's the, the money side. Um, is care coordination scalable? Absolutely. Like, I think that that's really the key of what we're seeing is that the use of technology that's well-designed, well-integrated, and easy to use can have an exponential impact on an entire population. If, if you know, and this goes back, uh, I'm going to get out my soapbox briefly. Like you go out back to JFK and Reagan and the, uh, the dis, uh, the dismemberment of mm -hmm. our mental health institution system, which needed massive overhauls and all those things. But Doing the, what they did of closing them, sending people out, created uh, a, a behavioral health crisis that's driven homelessness and all sorts of other issues. But at the time that that happened, there was this, uh, I think a lot, there was this a belief a lot in the medical industry, um, medical field, that behavioral health was a soft science, that it wasn't really real but like it's feelings and so like we'll like let them do it and 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 what what you see is is that that carried and was pervasive all the way through to 2012 when meaningful use was passed mm. and when meaningful use was passed for those of you who aren't familiar with meaningful use meaningful use was passed as part of the feds uh desire to promote the use of ele certified electronic health records and the way it worked was simple. If you build for CMS, Centers for Medicaid Services, for a service and you use an electronic health record that was certified, you got a bonus payment. How much bonus payments do you ask? Well, $32 billion in six years. It created Epic and Cerner and the massive mega medical industrial complex around technology Whoa. we see today. If you go back and look at pre-meaningful use and post-meaningful use, Doctor loads, clinician loads, et cetera, were way lower than they are now because we're not doing a lot of the things that we had to do. Like the electronic health record has forced us into patterns that are more efficient, more clinically driven, et cetera. And then like the most amazing thing is, is that now we can track evidence-based clinical assessments digitally, which means we can get longitudinal views of entire populations and all these wonderful things. But what happened was, is that in 2012, when meaningful use was passed, they cut out behavioral health providers. They cut out inpatient psychiatric care. They did all these things that left the behavioral health field out. Why? Well, go back to the 70s. There you go. So what happened was, is the medical, the physical medical, traditional medical, whatever term you want to use that doesn't offend anybody, leapt forward. I mean, just the ability to provide care and see patients and do these things went from Stone Age to much less Stone Age <laughs> in some areas. <laughs> but the ability to see more patients, all those things have happened. You know, I can, on my phone right now, go look at my medical records, schedule a teledoc. I can do all these mm. things. Can I do it with my psychiatrist? Nope. Mm. So what happened is, is that it set everybody back. So the National Alliance did a survey, I think two years ago, of all the behavioral health provider members that it had. How, what percentage, Travis, do you think of members were either ready for meaningful use or were using a certified electronic health record nationally in the United States? Less than 30. 3%. Oof. 
So what you have is an industry that's not driven by technology, not driven by data and not integrated. And so the thing that like, I really like, I, I work with, um, I work with someone, uh, in population health here at the County that is really, really, really loves this idea that what we're doing is an integration story. We're talking about how we're integrating, we're putting things back where they belong. So we're not trying to stay separate and do our own thing. What we're trying to do is have a lens where we're bringing behavioral health back into the areas that it needs to be. So I think, you have a system that was designed to fail. It was designed to be a crisis response, not proactive. It was designed to be something that was not really geared towards what people needed, but was really geared towards what was the lowest perceived cost on the front end. And so we still paid for it on the back end. And so those two things I think have come together as the money is not there. And I will the opioid, the, I have to butcher the name, the bill for families, the opioid, the opioid bill that passed like a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. Congress directed CMS to create pilot projects on bringing behavioral health providers into the fold. The meaningful use is now called interoperability act or whatever it is that hasn't happened because the world is blown up. But imagine if you put $32 billion into the hands of providers that were providing behavioral health services, inpatient care, substance abuse, crisis reds, all of those things, $32 billion. Holy cow, the impact would just be astronomical. Mm -hmm. And so once you, once you put in those pieces, the, 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 the funding and the technology, that scalable piece, um, if you had told me before I started working on that jail diversion project that a mental health jail diversion project in a state that was not a Medicaid expansion, that was 49th in mental health spend, would be able to do the things it could do and have you know 350 to 400 people through pretrial mental health jail diversion a month, I'd have thought you were crazy. If you'd have told me that their ROI would be four to one officially and more than 15 to one unofficially would take into account all the federal match and everything, I'd have thought you were crazy. It's the, the thing that we really want to focus on, at least in my humble opinion now, is how are we using technology to do two things? One, enable the integration of data to put the right data in front of the clinician at the right time. Um, and then how are we giving them the tools necessary without adding extra steps into their work. And so what does that look like? Like when I worked at a suicide hotline, um, they had a, a, you know, a crisis EHR, not certified homegrown product. And they had 18 clinical assessments built in. So, you know, the Columbia, PHQ, DAST and CWA for, you know, substance abuse, yes. functional literacy, violence risk assessment, suicide risk assessment, all this stuff. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and um, we're going through and I'm like, man, that is... That's a lot of data. That's a lot of information. And like, they're great at filling them out, but how is the human brain? It can't supposed to hold all this in there. We have five active memory slots Figure you're on a hotline. You've got one for the, for the person you're talking to one for the data stuff you're entering. There's just not enough brain space to hold it. So we started to do like really low to the ground, basic stuff. Let's group assessments together, create a combined score. So when you get to the end of it, you have two or three numbers, not 18. Small things like that, I think, are able to start to move that needle of effectiveness and efficiency. And then you look at some of the artificial intelligence stuff, which is just bananas. Uh, Quantify, um, you know, Tony Wood. Yeah. Um, I worked with them on some of their artificial intelligence stuff using natural language processing of people's Instagram. And they're able to predict, you know, risk and mood and, you know, schizophrenia flows and anxiety, major depressive disorder, all these things, and do it in a way that the 
someone could come in. We, I helped them submit an NIH grant. And like the whole thing was that a patient could come in that had signed up and the clinician would be able to pull up their thing and see the clinical white space. So all the areas between when they were there, how they were actually doing, because patients will always present better day of than they will of what's really going on. Mm. And then the AI automatically generated case notes that was based upon what it had derived from the natural language processing. So there's ways that we can do these things to make te technology make it easier. Um, and I think those are the things, I feel like I missed one of the three things. It was money, scalability. Clinical outcomes. Clinical outcomes, that's the other one. Um, the, the clinical outcomes piece I think is really fascinating and it's something that I'm working on here in San Diego a lot, which is fee-for-service in a behavioral health environment is <clears throat> medically unethical. Like it just doesn't, <laughs> like it doesn't work. So it doesn't, <laughs> We might have to edit that one out, but like, it just doesn't necessarily, I, I have this theory when it comes to negotiation. Like when I was in law, the thing that I was really exceptional at was mediation. Like I could get two people that just hated each other and get them to like, be like, okay, well, I'm not entirely happy, but I'm mostly happy. So like we won't, you know, whatever. And I, I have this phrase where I said, we want, we want people to be on the same side of the table. And when you do outcomes-based care, value-based care, pay for success care, whatever it is, you get people on the same side of the table. And then what's really amazing is that the magic of what happens is that suddenly the doctor's not churning. They're like, what does this patient actually need? What's actually happening? And so like you see like some unbelievably innovative places. Uh, Austin State Hospital redesign. Um, the voters in Austin passed a 67% property tax increase, raised a billion and a half dollars to fund the, the redesign of the Austin State Hospital system, covers a third of the state of Texas. And they did crazy things like get rid of waiting rooms. They did crazy things like make it so that a patient can come to one appointment and the doctors come to them, not four appointments in a single week. And you look at um, the behavioral health, to me, behavioral health in these settings is the barometer of how everything else is doing. If somebody's behavioral health is strong, their medical outcomes, their medical, their traditional medical is going to be better. If their behavioral health is strong, that means their social determinants of health are strong and solid. And it's one of those things that it's like it's the canary in the coal mine for a lot of people. And so when we start to look at things of how we're incentivizing doctors, it's a real paradigm and cultural shift because people shouldn't be in the hospital. You look at the Austin State Hospital redesign, a billion dollar funding. They started Dell Med, the first D1 medical school in the past 50 years. They created the Design and Health Institute, which took art, human-centered design, and medical to create something where people need to think about how we're actually designing our healthcare systems. Um, when you put all these pieces together and you get into this like culture paradigm shift, the doctor stops being somebody who comes in and you're like, what are your vitals? Okay, you're fine. Here's your meds. Go. And says, how are you doing? How are we actually like supporting somebody in what they're doing? And how are we supporting somebody with full evidence-based clinical work that supports this idea of nonlinear recovery? You know, behavioral health is multivariate nonlinear recovery. It's not, well, my knee broke and now I'm going to go to PT and then I'm okay. And so all of those things kind of flow together into this system where, and this is not, I mean, it's a little pie in the sky. I'm a little Pollyanna, but I'm an optimist with a raincoat. And I genuinely believe that like behavioral health outcomes are trackable, reportable, and consistently um, d demonstrated in the data that if you support somebody with consistent therapy, with consistent access to a healthcare professional, you can move the needle. So can a psychiatrist see 70 people 
Absolutely not. But are we allowing our psych MPs to practice up their yes. credentials? Are we allowing our MFTs and our uh, LCSWs to bill as part of a behavioral health practice? Or are we making it so that it's this weird offshoot thing where it's not supported? Or are we reimagining the role that pharma has in the psychiatric healing process? Yeah. Because our whole system right now is, is predicated on a prescriber. Yeah. You know, because we have believed... And that goes back to that soft science thing. I think doctors, mm -hmm. if, if you read any of uh, Robert Whitaker's work, um, uh, at Anatomy of an Epidemic or mm -hmm. Mad in America, he just talks about the the place that pharmaceuticals took in providing a, a solution that looks like something medical mm -hmm. that kind of tries to professionalize or formalize the, the psychiatry experience. But the truth is, in the past, really good psychiatrists were holistic thinkers yeah and they said you know i'm gonna i'm gonna write on this prescription pad to go take a walk every day yeah. you know yeah. to, to to find to make some friends and like to have there's a social rehabilitation mm -hmm. component to this you know so you're talking about clinical outcomes and i want to i want to touch on the soft science thing because um the kennedy forum which is a, a mental health uh think tank or group out of out of uh the chicago area started by um uh, patrick kennedy um, they wrote this paper that I, I thought was amazing about three, four years ago about measurement based care. Mm -hmm. And they said that I think it was 11% of psychiatrists and 8% of, of psychologists actually use measurement based care tools. Mm -hmm. You listed off a bunch of, of, of measurement tools. Um, I wonder how much, you know, do you think that the, the soft science, um, persona that was projected onto behavioral health has subsequently been internalized by mm -hmm. behavioral health providers to say, well, let's, we don't need formal tools here. I mean, there's, you know, there's a magic in therapy or there's a process in, in case management or ACT that like, we don't want to, you know, we, we don't want to be too hard on it. When in fact, um, don't we all want to have data around and, and don't we want to have right size treatment? That's kind mm -hmm. of what you started our conversation off with is right size treatment. Have the treatment match what the person needs, not divvying out the same flavor of ice cream to people who frankly freaking hate chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think the statistic I love the most that pisses off the most people when I share it, I think it was a 2018 study. So another pop quiz, another one. Out of everyone who received uh, emergency department hospital care for behavioral health emergencies in that, I think that was, I think it was 2018 study was done in 2017. How many, you know, what percentage of people do you think received an evidence-based treatment? In the ER? In the, yeah. In the United States in total. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> one out of three people. Like, I mean, it's just, it, it, it blows my mind. So one out of three people would get something that was effectively a one-off or an anecdote or something didactic mm. from the doctor that was there. And like that, that is part of the problem is like, I think that the, the industry embraced it. And I think that what you're about to see is, let's see. So this was last year. So 80, let's see, hold on. Let me get this statistic, right? 65, 60 to 65% of psychiatrists in the United States are 55 plus. Yeah. And so the, the soft science had a variety of impacts. One of the impacts it had was to decrease program participation as well. And so driving up program participation, you got to have funding, you got to have training, you got to have all these programs. Um, but I think they did. And I think that there's, there's a little bit of blending and there's a little bit of megalomania in this idea that some behavioral health providers start to believe their own hype they can see what this person needs. Yes, they can, but fucking clinically measure it and track it 
with data. Because like I've talked with massive organizations, very basic. Do you use a clinical measure to assess suicidality? Yes. Okay, what do you use? Well, you know, we'll use the Columbia or the PHQ for blah, blah, blah. I said, great. How do you track it? <clears throat> On paper. <clears throat> they don't. Like, I mean, yeah. So it's useless. If it's not digital, it's useless. You're not going to scan it in. You're not going to get the, you know, the, the veracity of the point. data. Like, and so it's something that is systemic throughout our system. Is, uh, I think it's something like 10% of emergency departments even have an actual psychiatrist on call. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I did a lot of work in emergency departments and emergency department diversions. Um, and I've, I've had doctors say to me off record, truly, our unofficial policy is we don't treat behavioral health patients. We stabilize and we get them out the door. Risk management, not care management. Um, And I've seen some of the places where they go. And I've been a part of some programs that were working to reduce that. And like a a 23-hour OBS uh, facility was an old school gym with lazy boys and Haldol drips. Not a clinical facility that was supporting that person's long-term care. And so, you know, I think that we get into these modes where I think we need to encourage providers in the behavioral health space to innovate, but innovate in a way that's going to be repeatable, evidence-based and supported by science. And like I've submitted a lot of grants to the NIH and I will tell you, it is the most fucked up like process and review and like all of this stuff. I had one that was just, the scores were just amazing. And then a non-reviewer in the final thing came forth and was like, but I don't think this price is right. And I like I had the I had like the program officer call me and be like, they tanked it. I'm like, but they're not supposed to be able to tank on price. I mean, it was yeah. like it was it was, it was a SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research, which if you ha- if you if you're in a business and you want money, there's gobs of it. SBIR, um, and it tanked it. And I go, but how can they do that? He's like, well, and I'm like, you want me to resubmit again? He's like, yeah. And I go. Ugh. Because like the thing was, is that the guidelines of how they do it, they brought in people that weren't behavioral health experts, people that didn't know what they were doing. And then someone to go, well, this is too expensive. It's like, you're a moron. Like, you know, and it wasn't, the price was like a hundred thousand dollars for a crisis EHR for hotlines for, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it was a, a de minimis price. It's too expensive. They can't do it. And so it tanked an entire grant application and I've seen it again and again and again. And so, you know, that, that is a broader systemic issue of how we need to, you know, reform the NIMH, um, to support actually giving people money. I mean, you know, uh, Chris, um, Chris Maxwell posted an article on the AAS listserv, I think a couple of years ago from the USA today that talked about like research and investment in suicide care top 10 causes top 10 leading causes of death in the united states suicide is the only one that's still going up and that year i think it was 16 million dollars had gone into direct suicide prevention research for those of you playing along with the home game essential oils had over 550 million dollars that year (laughs) so it's priorities and where we're prioritizing and how we're actually giving access to the funds i want to i want to have you waxed philosophical here for a second? You you know uh, a lot of things about a lot of things. You, you you mentioned your your previous struggles with uh, with mental health. I've had mine, uh, depression, mood swings, things like that. What what is what is the belief system that has stayed with people as far back maybe as we know, or at least as far back as we've been a country? 
that is permeating uh, a resistance to change and improvement. And like, what are we afraid of? What is, you know, what's getting in the way of everybody buying in that this is something that we need to invest resources in and fix together to be on the same side of the table? Shame. Like, I think at the end of the day, it's shame, whether it's, um, you know, my, uh, my sister came in June and, uh, she came to visit, um, and, uh, got here and tested positive for COVID. And so we were locked down for two weeks and it was this unbelievable amount of people shaming her and shaming Mm. me that how could we do this? And like, I mean, it was crazy to me. And, 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 and I use that as an anecdote because, um, as someone who, uh, I take medication every single day. Um, I work with my son who also takes medication every single day to destigmatize what I'm doing. So if I see him in the, I see him in the morning, I'll be like, Hey, let's take our meds together. Um, we have this, uh, you know, we have this thing in our culture where we, it's much easier to blame the person than it is to accept them for who they are and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the root, um, I mean, going, I mean, all the way back to like the, the Marlboro man machismo bullshit, we're America. We stand up. We're okay. We're out there in the fields. We're getting shit done. Like I'm, I'm not sad. I'm okay. You know, all that bullshit, despite the fact that when vets were coming back from Vietnam and the, the oh, level yeah. of PTSD and mental health trauma was just astronomical. And like, the thing is that we don't, we don't bring that lens into the rooms that it needs to be. We don't bring the lens of behavioral health into things like um, when we're designing, uh, even when we're designing a crisis response, we don't bring the lens of behavioral health. We are now much more into like well, this hotline worker has had three high rated calls and, uh, they were on two MCOTs and they did these things that were really hard. This idea of compassion fatigue. Um, I worked on a program where we, we actively worked to rate what people were going through and then rotate workforce so that we didn't get burnout. Yes. Um, you know, talking about, uh, I worked on a, uh, a medical resident program on designing mental health for uh, mental health care for medical residents. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, every year, roughly two full medical classes die by suicide. Um, these are fully fledged doctors that are mm. in their residency programs because they don't want to tell their supervisor because they don't want to get knocked down. They don't want to like get in trouble or lose their license. Same thing in the military. You can't talk about your behavioral health care. So we, make, we have created a culture where we self shame. And I think at a certain point start to self loathe that we have these issues. And so I, and I, I, well, actually I'll, I'll give this. So like I, uh, I've been giving talks, um, on stages. I mean, my whole life, I love public speaking, but I was giving talks on stages, um, up until last year. And I always thought that what I'm about to describe was normal. I would, I would pump myself up. I'd listen to some, you know, some of my music and like, I'm a speaker that I don't script. Like I outline and then I've done this enough that I can give a cogent, you know, speech as I go. And I'd get up on stage and I would have a dissociative event every single time. I just watched myself give the speech and I thought like, man, this is fucking cool. And I was in therapy and I mentioned that to my therapist. She goes, well, I'm going to pause you right there. (laughs) She's like, this is not okay or normal. And I'm like, Oh, that really actually, now that you put it that way, like this is not okay or normal. And when I dug into it, she goes, you're not putting yourself into your talk. You're not, you're holding parts of yourself out. Mm. 
Um, I went up to Palo Alto to give a talk at an innovation conference after that session. She goes, here's your challenge. Put yourself in your talk. Talk about your struggles. Um, and I did. And like, I did not have the dissociative event. And it was one of the best talks I've ever given in my life. I talked about my own struggles with depression, with ADHD, with anxiety, um, and talked about like how it impacted me. And so like now what I do is I am forward leaning and telling people, hey, I go to therapy every week. I fucking love it. Like, you should too. You're fine. You're not. Go to therapy. <laughs> like the thing is, is like we all have unresolved childhood trauma. If you think you have an, un- if you think you don't have unresolved childhood trauma, that is in and of itself a sign that you have unresolved childhood trauma. And so, I think that it's one of these things that we have persistently created um, an environment that shames isolates and pushes people away. Like the, one of the ones, like I love finding things like in my own brain to unhook. Like one of the things I'd never really thought of until a few years ago, and it was actually here in San Diego that there was a protest about this is someone did one of those haunted houses and did it with an insane asylum theme. And like very appropriately, I see now, how does that perpetuate those stereotypes? Oh yeah. Um, and I think that that's one of the shifts that we have to come to. That's both accepting and understanding of like, these are the struggles that people are going through and it doesn't make them less human. It doesn't make them less able to contribute. It doesn't make them anything less. Um, it makes them braver because every day that you're going and doing your thing and you yell at a barista, that barista is working through anxiety or depression, or they just, you know, they're Mm -hmm. postpartum, whatever it is there's this lack of ability to do perspective taking in the United States. I mean, maybe, I mean, I think it's elsewhere in different forms and fashions, but the United States specifically, it's this lack of ability to do perspective taking. What are you going through and how do I empathize with that? And like, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it on this is like one of my favorite uh, things to read about in mental health is the manifestation of command hallucinations and auditory hallucinations and schizophrenia in the United States. They're angry. And, and they will, you know, mad, you know, mm. generally speaking, angrier, more uh, demand around, you know, whether it's violence or harm or whatever. In other countries, it doesn't work that way. Like other, other cultures. So, you know, you get to, I think, if I remember, I'll have to send the article if people want to see it. I believe that in Africa, it was much more warm and, and, and uh, yeah. motherly. Uh, I believe in Asia, it was a lot more of the, the supportive father. Like there's just, it's really fascinating if you look at like, how are we manifesting those types of things? And like, we, we need to stop being angry at ourselves at each other. Um, and really talk about these things and really get open about everybody's yeah. suffering. And how about some distress tolerance too? You know, can you be okay with things being not okay? Yeah. Can you be okay with your kid or your spouse being not okay? Yeah. Do you have to fix things all the time, you know, and, and voices is one. So I, I'm a person of faith. And so I don't say this, uh, with any hint of, of being glib, but, um, there is an, an all time bestseller, uh, called the Bible. And there are a lot of stories in there that if you weren't a person of, of, of faith or believed in the spirit or anything like that, you would think that that is hearing voices mm-hmm. that somebody is talking to you that other people can't hear, you know, and we don't have a tolerance for that anymore. And there's great things like the hearing voices network now, which is like a global organization. Mm-hmm. And, and they just pull people and they say, Hey, have you ever heard a voice before? You know, and, and if you say that in America, everyone's like, that must be a bad thing, you know? Um, but the way that some people relate to their deceased ancestors, mm-hmm. 
they'll have dreams about them and they'll talk to them in their dreams or they'll talk to them kind yeah. of in their head to say like, what should yeah. I do next? You know, they'll, they'll think about that, that grandparent that they had. And so I think the, the false, um, uh, dichotomy, I guess is like, you can struggle and be a human that has value and worth in a society. Like it's not, you don't suddenly get, you shouldn't suddenly get pushed into like this different place, you know, or, or, Hey, you tried, but you can't do life. And now you, now you're over here. Um, I don't think we do a very good job of just making space or holding space for diversity of thought. And that includes, and that includes behavioral health experiences. Yeah. And instead, um, we just, uh, we, we judge it. I, I personally, I think we're afraid as hell that it's, it's going to be contagious mm-hmm. that, it, that if we are nice to this person, you know, like COVID, like if we're, if we're close to this person and they have depression, pretty soon we're going to get it. Or if mm-hmm. they have schizophrenia, pretty soon we're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, we're just, you know, how my, my, one of my favorite questions in, in therapy is how's that working out for you? <laughs> you know, when we have Vietnam veterans and we have doctors who, you know, uh, w- unfortunately we have a tolerance, we have a tolerance for 3%, 10%, 20%, whatever it is of people it's not working for, and they're completing suicide or they are, you know, just severely struggling and not able to talk about it. But we concede that for the 80 or 90% mm-hmm. that the system's working for. Very, very disturbing to me. Um, I got two more questions for you. One is, you know, you, you talked about return on, on investment. And I think that that is a, an effort that, uh, that behavioral health crisis providers need to do a better job of. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for listeners who are involved with mobile crisis, crisis mm-hmm. call centers, crisis residential services, any, any type of crisis service about how to get there, how to demonstrate their value mm-hmm. and, and possibly, you know, channel resources, especially in a, um, in, in a, uh, in a non fee for service environment, mm-hmm. you know, shared risk, shared reward. What's a first step or two that they can take to mm-hmm. get in that direction? Um, so it's funny. So I'm doing this now with San Diego. Um, San Diego is, is working on mobile crisis for mm-hmm. the region. Cool. And, um, I think that the advice I'd have is first off, look at the examples. Like, again, I'll send you what I have. If people want to talk with hell, if we can do a video and I can show people how to build the calculators, I'd love to do that. Um, I think that you want to really actually create a design process. And I think that what I've seen in behavioral health time and again is we are reactive to need, which is great. We have to be reactive to what people need, but we are not proactive in design. And so what happens is, is, is someone will say, you know, I was working in a community where they had a huge spike of PCP and cocaine induced psychosis. And so we, you know, there was a reaction of how we were going to do it. Slow down, <laughs> uh, and, and go through an actual design process. And again, I, I've got a, I've got a couple slide decks that I put together on base level, you know, design for behavioral health. But, you know, the first step is, is, you know, we identify the need of what we want. Um, and then we identify, you know, we, I do, you know, divergent thinking, what are all the possible solutions and possibilities and things we could do to address this problem? And like design always needs to, is different things. You want to design in scarcity, like 
Google's figured this out too. Google, you know, you could have Google Labs. You could do whatever you want. And all these things, and their designs were me until they started to limit on time and resources. Necessity is the mother of invention. So if you you know get a design session, sit down with the people and say, okay, here's our need. What are all the possible solutions? Great. That's what they need. And then this is the biggest one that I ask every single time I get in a meeting with people. What does success look like? <laughs> yes. If we get a year from now, what does it look like? What will make us happy of where we are? So you start with your need. You do your divergent thinking. Pause. Go to the end and say, what does success look like? And really push yourself to say, man, and this is one that just happened. How many involuntarily holds could we afford could we avoid excellent question what if we did two a month and then figure out how much does that cost to do an involuntary hold soup to nuts not just what's the time in there like when we built the menu for 11 15 it was not just the actual time in the in the hospital it was all the way down to phones emails mm -hmm. and faxes and the police rolling out and doing these things so figure out both you know, those three pieces. So the need divergent, and then what does success look like? Then you do convergent thinking where you take all of those ideas and you boil them down into different ideas and prototype. And this is one thing I can't stress enough. Prototype the design, do mock playthroughs, do, you know, bring in people to like, look at it, create visuals that are easy to understand. Again, I will share all the visuals I have and send some of the decks I've got around conceptualizing behavioral health crisis and all these things conceptualize what it should look like. And then you have all of your pieces together to say, so now we know what our need is, all the scale possibility of what we made hat of what we could do. We've, we've converged everything into two or three possibilities and we know what success looks like. Then you get to this area of how do we crosswalk those, those, those different programs to what success looks like. And then when you actually make the pitch, and I say this to people, whether they have money that's already guaranteed or not, make a pitch deck, actually make a deck, five, six, 10 slides. It should never, if your slide decks are more than 40 or 50 slides or more, <laughs> more than 10 or 12 slides, like you're like, yeah. we, we should have an intervention. Um, your slide deck should be clear and concise. What are the value propositions of what you're doing? What are the really core things? The value propositions, that's what success looks like. What is the design that you want to do? Well, you converge thought into three different models, get a graphical representation of what that looks like. And then get to this, get comfortable with this idea that you have to actually pitch it, convince people of it, say, this is what we need and why, and advocate, like really, really drive into this advocate level of like, this is why we need to design it this way. This is why we thought about it this way. This is why we want to look at things this way. And then when you've got what success looks like, your conversion thinking, your models, well, that leads to measurement-based care because all of a sudden we figured out what people should be doing. You know, so it, it all flows into that one process. You, you are speaking life into something that I think is really important in this industry because we become experts at our problems, but we don't become experts in our solutions, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I have been trying to usher in new problems, like I, to let's fix these ones and let's have, let's have a new problem, you know, let's have a problem of, of, um, abundance or of like a lot of good ideas coming in and having to like choose instead of a problem of scarcity where we go, you know, like this, we can't fix this and we never have, and it's always going to be this way. Um, there, there's a lot we can learn from other industries mm -hmm. that they, they make a value proposition. You know, they, they, uh, any app that's successful is trying to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, they can articulate it. They can articulate the solution and we've, yeah. we've got to get there. The, the last question I want to ask you is we have no shortage of, of, 
negative uh, stimuli right now in, in the world. And when you work in behavioral health or in suicide prevention, it's almost kind of like you're asking for it because you, you're just exposed to the human condition so much. Um, how, what, where do you draw your strength or your resiliency from, uh, knowing that there are just so many sources that could bring you down or that could mm-hmm. be discouraging? Yeah. Uh, I talk a lot about resilience. Like, so I have, I, I like to, in therapy, talking to my therapist, you know, I have three superpowers, um, uh, conduction. So I'm really good with people in the room. I can talk with people. I can read a room. I can work to understand where everybody's coming from with all the little micro gestures. Yeah. Uh, activation. I can motivate the shit out of some people. Like I can get people excited about stuff that have never been excited about stuff and resiliency. Those are my three superpowers. And, um, I've been through, um, a lot. I mean, I've been through some just unbelievable shit in my life. And like, you know, 2019, like I gave a little flavor earlier, but you know, my, uh, nephew of 13 years old, uh, passed from Ewing sarcoma in August. Um, two weeks later, my dog of 13 years died. Uh, I lost two uncles and then two friends to suicide in the last week of the year. Hmm. And, um, there was also just another, you know, whole level of personal stuff going on. And my, my, my youngest son has a, some behavioral challenges. And so it was just one of the most complex, stressy times. Oh, and then I'd also quit my job in May to then be like, I'm going to do this. Um, so 2020 has been pretty just like it's eh, act- more of the same. It's been a little better. Like assuming Nevada <laughs> goes the way Nevada is supposed to be. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've been really working on like how to talk about what makes me resilient. And I look at it this way. There was a day in August. It was, um, I think it was August 30th of 2019. And, um, I had spent four or five years kind of creating my thesis around behavioral health of how I thought we needed to conceptualize the crisis system, both from like visuals and like key, you know, components and like really had worked on it. And I'd given talks all over the country on it. And, uh, when the county supervisor uh, here brought me in, um, I educated him and his team, and like we worked on the strategy of how this how this was going to go. And so this day, I, I believe it was the twenty eighth or thirtieth, eight a.m. in the morning, I'm I'm sitting in a conference room, and the county supervisor gets up there, and he th- and like I knew this was happening, but like he puts up the slides and he says, "This is the strategic vision for redesigning behavioral health in San Diego," and goes through the presentation. It was a lot of the talk I'd given in different places and things. And it was yeah. just, it was, it was, and it, like, I mean, I've got goosebumps right now. It was, it was unbelievable. And like there were hospital CEOs and providers and peer support specialists and all these people and government agents, you know, different, whatever. And it was just this unbelievable, like resounding support of success. And people love this idea of how we conceptualize this infinity loop that we have to break into a cycle that supports people on both sides of acute and subacute. And it was, it was unbelievable. And then I went home I changed and I put my dog down for cancer at noon. So 2020 or 2019, um, was the year of full expression is what I call it. Um, and so now like having gone through that and done my work and like, you know, therapy, I call it like full expression centered is that I know, you know, internally my faith and spirituality, like I firmly believe this, the lowest lows I've had, the equivalent exists on the other side. Yeah. And I know like that day, oh, chokes me up a lot. Um, that day was so hard and so beautiful all at the same time. Even going back to the talk I gave uh, in Orlando, the day that I'm on stage talking about how to use predictive analytics and technology to prevent suicide was the same day my cousin attempted. And so I think part of what has um, 
seen me through is like, I'm not a Pollyanna. I, I know that bad things happen. They've happened to me in spades. Um, but I've, I've developed this real strong personal sense of self that shit, I've been through things that would kill most people. Like 2019, like even my therapist goes, I've worked with a lot of people and you're the most resilient person I've ever met. And like, that is the core of who I am is like, I stay centered where I am and I don't try and avoid the lows. I, I sit with it. Like yeah. I feel it. Like I, I, you know, man, like I, I was sitting right where you were sitting in like 2019 just kept punching me and punching me. And, um, uh, season four of the magicians, I was, I was sitting here just trying to like not think about what was going on. And, um, Season four of the magicians came on spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> season finale. And there's this, they do this song. It's a farewell to a character that I'd really identified with. And like my door was open and all of a sudden I'm like, Oh shit. And just ugly cried. And then I like closed the door because I didn't want the neighbors thinking about was getting murdered. And then I rewatched it again because I want, like I, I wanted to, I wanted to not bottle that up. I wanted to feel it. So like here, I like this like ridiculous show about magicians, ugly crying. And then afterwards I'm like, Okay. <laughs> so I sit with it. And then when I'm in the highs and I'm in those moments, I'm like, this is beautiful. I, I, I sit and I think about this poem, um, Walt Whitman, East Coker. And he talks about uh, one of the beautiful parts about life is being on the journey. Uh, but the real beauty is the ability to be aware of where you are on that journey in the moment. Um, I am aware that I am in a position of my life that will likely never happen again. I have, you know, this, this Ikigari going back to the beginning of our conversation, like the winds of fate may change and I may not be working doing the work I'm doing this time next year. I don't know, but I can be aware and content with the fact that I'm at this beautiful point. And the journey will continue forward. Similarly, when I'm at those super lows, I can be aware of the sadness and texture and depth of what I'm going through, but I'm also going to keep going forward. It's beautiful. I love that. Uh, Hudson, this has been just a blessing and an awesome time. Thanks for opening up your heart and your mind uh, to, to our listeners on the podcast today. Thank I you for having all me, you're doing. Thank you to my guest, Hudson Harris. Links to all the organizations that we discussed today will be included in the show notes, so check those out. And remember to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. We appreciate it.